Welcome to the Happily Different Podcast, where we unpack the interesting and unorthodox ways people approach their businesses and their lives. The mission of this show is to learn as much as we can from people who weren't afraid to go their own way. My name is Ryan Jaskowitz, and I'm your host, as well as CEO of 12.5 Capital, a non-bank finance company helping companies accelerate the progress they are trying to make in their businesses and in their lives. Today's guest is the CEO of Spalding Clinical, a clinical trials uh, company based out of uh, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, she started out as, I believe, director of clinical operations, where she worked her way up to CEO. Uh, prior to joining the company, she attended Marquette University, where she obtained a degree in nursing. Uh, she's an awesome mom to six kids and is an active member of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Cassandra Arado, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. It's been a while, so uh, Cassandra and I know each other. Do you prefer Cassandra or Cassie? Uh, Cassie is good. Cassie. Okay, so I'm going to use Cassie for the rest of the show. I I used your proper name at least. You know, you know, I have uh, yes. three kids myself, and I only call them by their full names. There's plenty of like nicknames they can have, but I feel like you should at least acknowledge the full name, at least for the for the parents in the in the audience. Yes, I did that for four out of six of my kids. Oh, really? Full names. Yeah. Nicknames up too. <laughs> Nicknames up too. There you go. There you go. Okay. So in doing some research on you, you know, full disclosure, I've known Cassie a while. Uh, we work together in a different capacity, but in doing some research on you on what I don't know is whether you grew up in the Milwaukee area for your whole life. Is that, are you from Wisconsin originally? Yes. Yep. Grew up Milwaukee area. Milwaukee Born area raised. the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Milwaukee and through and through. So what's what's your favorite beer? I mean, what it's got to be a Milwaukee one, right? Uh, well, there's a local local brewery, Third Space Happy okay. Place is my favorite one. Third Space Happy Place. All right, cool. I'll have to try that out. I've yeah. I've not had. How many siblings do you have? I have five siblings, so I come from six. You come from six. You've had six. And where do you mm -hmm. fall in the order? I'm second oldest. Second oldest. Okay. Oldest. Yeah. And. I'm the I'm the oldest in, in my family, but they they do say the second oldest is the hardest worker. So it's clear in your <laughs> case as well. There's two parts to our family. There was like a first family and a second family. There were like the first three and the second three. And so I like grew up next to my sisters and I was pretty much a middle child. So I'm definitely like the mediator, negotiator, oh, yeah. keep the peace kind of person. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Also the hardest worker. <laughs> also the hardest right? let me pull the thread there though so you had three siblings and then three i'm assuming three younger ones later how'd that all go down yeah well we, there were six of us over 20 21 years so holy cow my the fourth child was born when i was in second grade so still pretty young and then sixth yeah. grade and then i was college for the last so like we were just all really <laughs> yeah. spread out yeah do you um do you feel like you helped raise the the smallest one or or all of them I guess or or were you already sort of out of, into college and the one that was born when I was in sixth grade the fifth boy he I definitely raised him yeah yeah are you guys close now yeah yeah we're That's close awesome. he's in San Francisco 
So I don't see him as much, but like, we're definitely the closest of the siblings. Definitely the closest. Interesting. My wife is the youngest of four girls. Um, she is, I would say, I don't know what the exact um, difference in age would be, but I may, maybe it's similar to that, but she is definitely closest with her oldest sister. So they are like, you know, kind of best wow. between the, between the siblings. So it's just weird how that all always kind of shakes out. Yes. My dad also is one of, was one of 12 and um, well, you're one of six. I should say he is one of 12, but he had a similar situation where he was going to college and his mom was still having kid. My grandmother was still having kids. And so there's these great pictures of him, you know, getting, coming home from college and holding the little baby like in his <laughs> arm. And I just, I find that fascinating. I just can't, yeah. can't fathom it. It's like a whole different world. Yeah. So what do you, uh, Milwaukee, you know, very blue collar working class town, similar to, um, similar to Chicago where I'm at. Um, what did your, what did your parents do for a living when you were growing up? Um, well, my mom stayed at home with us and my dad, um, he was a biomedical engineer and he, um, he worked for Marquette Electronics in Milwaukee and then GE Healthcare bought them out. And then he worked for Mortara Instruments. So he was like 20, 22 years of creating 12 lead ECG devices as an engineer for those companies. Interesting. Interesting. So he was always an engineer, always designing mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff throughout your childhood. Yes. You know, growing up in Milwaukee, what, how did it shape you kind of growing up? Would you say any thoughts on that? Well, I definitely have my like German Polish background. Um, <laughs> but you know, Milwaukee's a melting pot too. So, um, but just very European, um, definitely hard work ethic. So my, um, my dad, his family, like he, he came from six and a lot of them are in the trades and electricians. And, um, so my dad's dad always raised them on like, if you're going to dig a ditch, you better be the best ditch digger so that if everyone yeah. loses their job, you're the one that keeps it. My dad just instilled that hard work ethic. So it's very like Midwest hard work ethic. My dad like took us on these long distance bike rides when we were kids and taught us perseverance and basically like pushing through those really difficult times. So I mean, that's the biggest thing that comes to mind in terms of like what it was like in Milwaukee is I feel like all of our extended family around us, my father, my mom always taught you work hard. I, I, it's got, it's gotta be something, um, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but like Midwest related, because that, anytime I talk to anybody, interview somebody from Chicago, Wisconsin, I, uh, I just interviewed somebody from Michigan. That's always sort of the answer is work ethic. And I think it's mm -hmm. that immigrant nature. Like you mentioned, German, Polish, you know, I come from a very Polish family in Bay City, Michigan. Everyone came there, you know, very blue collar jobs. Chicago's the same way. It's just mm -hmm. all that. So it's interesting. I wonder as I start interviewing people around the United States, if that will be the same answer as to how they, mm -hmm. how it shaped them. You know, is that is that a stock answer, I wonder, or is that something true to us in the Midwest? It feels true to me. You know, it feels true. And 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 knowing you and knowing your family a little bit, uh, it, it it definitely rings true. I'm just I'm curious how that'll play out as I uh 
as I interview people uh, around the around the, uh, the U.S. Where did you guys go on these bike rides? Were they in Wisconsin, or did you guys travel for them? When I was seven, we did like our first longer ride from like West Bend to South Milwaukee, which was about fifty miles, and then. When yeah, I was yeah. nine, we did our first ride to Chicago. So we started um, Milwaukee Lakefront and rode the trail all the way down to Chicago Lakefront. That's fun. That's that's pretty wild. Yeah, my longest ride we rode from Milwaukee Lakefront down to Southern Illinois to Peoria. That was a three day ride. You went all the way to Peoria. Yeah. Oh my gosh, where did you guys stop along the way? Do you remember? Um, I don't remember the cities we stopped in. Um, but I remember like a couple of the trails were just beautiful and we stopped at a water park at one point, my dad would have us start at like (laughs) 5am so that we would beat Mm -hmm. the heat because we would be doing this in like July and he would be telling us at like 11am, you guys, we just have 20 more miles and I'm going to take you to this water park (laughs) that's up ahead. And so he would always give us these carrots and, um, we would stop at fun places. I think we stopped at like a carnival along the way too. That's awesome. How old were you when you did that last ride down in Peoria? I think like 11. And how many of the, so was it just your dad and the the three kids at the time? Um, it was just my dad, myself, and my older sister, because my younger one right below me, when we started the rides to Chicago, she was like too young to do it. And I mm-hmm. think like just on intro, like still like a little too young by the time we did our last ones. Right. Right. What did what did mom think of these rides? Did she like them? Think he was crazy? She was okay. Like she was always super nervous. She would be like, I remember yeah. like when we rode into Chicago, I got in a really bad accident. I like crashed into another biker on on the lakefront, like oh, right no. at the end of our ride. And I had this huge welt on my forehead. And my mom comes to pick us up and she's like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so thank thank God would, that was before FaceTime, right? Yeah. That would have been way worse for her. <laughs> way worse. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Taking your kids down from Milwaukee to Chicago is crazy enough. But if I'm doing my fast math correctly, you know, this is pre-cell phone, I oh, have yeah. to guess. Pre or pre-cell phone being common enough to throw on a bike. Yep. Yeah, we definitely did not That's have a cell wild. phone. It's definitely something I would do with my kids. And my wife would say, You're nuts. I have this like goal to run in all 50 states. And I have this vision of like renting an RV, bringing the kids along, uh, bring my wife along, obviously, and, you know, go state by state. And I run miles throughout the state or or run across the United States or something like that. And um, nobody's in for it. I'm the only <laughs> one that's uh, in for it right now. So, oh, my gosh, I, I met uh, I met a speaker or I, I had a speaker and he was presenting and he was talking about he took his son. He took a, ty- a hiatus from corporate world and like went into his own business and he took his son to Japan and they biked from like the East to the West coast. And his son was young. And so it was same kind of thing. And I was like, that yeah. was the number one, most like formative experience for me as a kid, because by the time I got to college or even through high school, it was like, you meet obstacles and you meet hardships and you're not as afraid you have that confidence in being able to do that. No matter what it is, whether well, something it's biking about, or something else, yeah, you've got to go through something hard. Right, right. But what I like about what you just said is, and as people know on this show, or they will know as they listen to it, I run a lot. 
something about endurance sports, I think, prepares people for doing hard things alone, basically. You know, effectively, there's no one else you can really lean on. I mean, you know, on a bike ride like that, your your dad could help you, your sister could help you, you have a little bit of company, but really you have to pedal those pedals and you gotta keep going and keep moving. Same thing with running. Do you um do you do any more do you still do endurance sports of any sort in your life now? Um, other than just being a mom to six kids. <laughs> I don't. I like, I have my Peloton bike and I ride, I ride my Peloton. I haven't done anything like major, like marathon or anything like that. I feel like I'm in, in an endurance sport in the business every day right now. So all of my mental fortitude is really taken up by that. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear that my business is really getting in the way of my, uh, endurance sports. <laughs> I always say <laughs> my, my business hobby is getting in the way of my endurance life. So. I definitely need yeah. my daily workouts to help me through that, but I've got to make it like an efficient 30 minutes and that's it. Right, right. Well, and that's the nice thing about Peloton. So as as much as I'm a a runner um, you know, outside most of the time, you know, we have uh we have the tread and the bike in the basement and there's just there's just no excuse then. You know, and there's just something about it that clicks and it's like, all right, this works, you know. My my wife yeah. loves it as well. She's down there every single day. Um so it's 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 interesting how that has uh Move to a lot of lot more people, you know, before cycling and running and things like that weren't act, you know, weren't as popular before, before things like Peloton uh, last on cycling. Does your, does your dad still cycle? He does um, like a little bit, like we actually did a ride to Chicago like five years ago with my two oldest and then like a couple of the cousins. Oh, cool. So he did it like with the grandkids and my sister and I, and nice. we, we did it again. Oh man, that must have been a blast. Did you guys like spend the weekend in Chicago or anything? Yeah, we like, um, we got down there and then the rest of everybody met us and we went to Navy Pier for the night and that was like, oh fun. Yeah, their fun. incentive. So it was, yeah, great. cool. That's a good deal. I love it. Okay. So your mom to six kids and, um, a CEO, obviously lots on your plate. Um, before we move on to Spalding Clinical itself. What what's that been, what's what has that been like? Because obviously you just talked about your mom, mom to six kids. By the way, does anybody ever bring up the fact that you guys keep doing sixes of everything? Because I think you said your grandparents had six kids. Yeah. Your dad being one of them. Is there any more sixes out there? I don't know about. Uh -uh. No, <laughs> you're the only one. <laughs> so it's 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 on somebody from each generation to pass that on. I guess yes. is the yep. is the gist. <laughs> All right. So next generation. One of them. One of them's got to look forward to it. Um, so obviously a lot on your plate. What's, um, I don't know, what's an insight you've had along this journey uh, relating to being a, a parent and running a large company? I mean, I know I have some thoughts myself, but as a, as a mom and, uh, uh, you know, obviously, un unfortunately in our world that most of the responsibility, um, whether consciously or subconsciously, defaults to the mom. And mm -hmm. now you're a CEO. How, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of asking a long-winded uh, question here, but just looking for some insights because it's, it's fascinating to me. Well, it's been um, an ongoing struggle and question. Like I'm very challenged by like, how do I make this work or how can I make this work? And to me, it's just like a, um, something I can conquer. And 
couple of like the biggest things have been um, support systems. My my younger sister, the fourth, um, she was mm-hmm. like 23 when I was like really in the mix of having kids. And so she came on as our full-time nanny for like seven years. And that oh, was yeah. amazing to have a family member like there caring for your children. You know, like they love them as much as you do or to just have someone stable like that's that's huge because I've been through periods where we didn't have her and, you know, you're bringing on different nannies, interviewing them. And like, that's so stressful, but when it's all working well at home, um, you got the nanny support, housekeeping support, like as much support as we've been able to afford to hire along the way. Um, it's that's key, but like the, my, one of my struggles or takeaways is like when, when we're starting out and I'm in that director of operations role and I'm not at that CEO role and I'm making sacrifices to try to build the business and to try to excel in my career, I, we might not necessarily have the income to bring on that support. And I always feel that right. for women in their twenties going, going through that or, or even, um, you know, men, if they're the stay at home in that situation, but like, it's, when you're going into double in, double income earners and have to bring on the support at home, there's an income level point where that works and below it, it's a little scary. So that's been a big takeaway for me was yeah. like, how do you, how do you even make that work for people in their twenties as they're developing their careers? And we're a little odd because we right. started having kids when we were 23 years old. So that's rough, yeah. but, um, yeah. By the time we were in our thirties, it all started. Well, you started a little earlier than, and I would say, I think you and I are around this. I'm 38. I think we're around the same age ish. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, we, I don't know, even with my current friends, like we were, we were earlier than, than most of them. You look at the generation now, that's all sort of waiting until mm-hmm. 30, 31, 32 to start that process of, of uh, starting a family, if that's what what somebody wants, so maybe they are missing that period that we kind of worked through. Yeah. I, I had none of the burden you had, but um, you know, working through that time, I, I do know that it was important to me to. Um, I, I don't know why the light went off, but the light went off of like I need to make some some really hard rules and boundaries. Uh, relating to my business and, and how that affects my family. Because for some reason for me, you know, I have a, I have a decent sized family. My wife's got a big family, but for, for some reason for me, it was very clear that like this little circle where all these people, like, you know, my wife and my three kids where they land in, like, that's the most important thing to me, right? That little circle. And it, this sounds easy, but it's not. And I think you probably know that, which is setting up those boundaries is very difficult at 20 some odd years old when you're trying to do what you talked about, which is build the business network, uh, get your name out there as your own person. Um, you know, make people think, you know, you know what you're talking about when you really don't. Cause I didn't. Um, and so for me, it was about creating these boundaries and hoping that by sticking with them, they would somehow pay off in the long run because you've, you've got these little, 
and basically little balls of skin that these kids are right. And they're, you're molding them. They're constantly recording. And, it, and in my opinion, that's the most important time is, is are those early years, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's like an inverse of how it should be. Yeah. You know, you don't have the income and the, and the things like that to support, um, getting somebody to mow the lawn or getting a nanny or getting somebody to clean the house. It, it, because to me, I would rather just spend all of my time with them yeah. just sitting together or playing or whatever it is that I don't want to have to focus on the other things if you can afford that. But like you said, that's such a difficult thing. So were, were boundaries a big thing for you? Is that something you caught on to early? Was that something that kind of came later in life? Any, any thoughts on, on sort of the boundaries between business and your family? A little bit. I mean, I, I thought of it, you know, the way I looked at it was um, these all are very close together. So I need to find a way for it to work all together. So work, home and school, I sit up in like a five mile radius of each other during the, the earliest times. Right. And then um, there were periods where we set up a daycare within within work. So that I could go like visit the oh, babies cool. while I was working. Um, so I <laughs> always tried to overlap it a lot so that I could kind of do both at the same time. But there are times that that doesn't make sense to do. Um, you know, if mm -hmm. you're doing yard work and you can't afford to bring in someone to do that, like get the kids out doing that with you. So there were areas where like I tried to just do both at the same time. And then there were clear areas where like mm -hmm. on my walk home from work, that transition was like two minutes. And I'm like, okay, I need to like do mm -hmm. a couple more laps around the block to transition into a headspace yeah. where I can like really be present. Right. I, oh my gosh, I, I, I totally know that mainly because of, I mean, at least you had the two minute walk, right? Like everyone's working from home now. We were a remote work company a couple of years prior to the pandemic. And there's no, there's all these benefits to that, but there's no break. There's no uh, shift from upstairs in the office here to downstairs into the kitchen. There's no mental break. And so yeah. I'm trying to put walks in between there where I'm like, all right, everybody, I see you, but it's going to be 15 minutes. I'm going to go one mile walk and I'll be back. It'll all be good. It'll be my commute. But I just, I I'm fascinated by that because like there is this blending uh, of these things. I'm seeing this weird thing with my kids, you know, every generation is going to find a reason to hate their parents. Right. So I'm sure there'll be something your kids don't like about you and something they don't like about me, but which are all unfounded. I'm learning because it's like, there's the things I hated my parents about, but you know, the thing that my kids think is they think, um, because I work from home a lot that all I do is work all the time. Even though I, I work typical hours, I don't work late into the evenings. I don't work uh, or, you know, I work, start a little early, but you know, they're at school, but they come home and they're around and all they're seeing is working. Yeah. Right. There's, they come in, Hey, will you play? I'm like, sorry, I can't play. I got to work. I, I'm, I'm, this is the work time. And they understand physical separation more. When I go to school, I'm at yeah. school. When I, you know, go to the park, I'm at the park. And it dawned on me that like, Oh my gosh, they're going to, even though they have this thing that I would have killed for as a kid where my parents being around all the time would have been awesome. Like seeing them more, not having them go to, on um, you know, work trips and all that kind of stuff. So I'm home all the time, but they're going to perceive it as all my dad did was work. Yeah. And I'm just fascinated as to how, like, that's such a hard deal for them to that's understand. That's so true. 
I think like my kids said that way more like during 2020 when we were home all the time, it was like, Hey, can you Mm -hmm. play? And it was always, you're, you're working all the time. I can't see you. It's all the time. And it's totally that because you're like in the space and there's not a physical barrier. There's not a physical barrier. And so now, (laughs) you know, 15 years from now, all of our kids are going to be in therapy, (laughs) complaining to their therapist that my dad worked and my mom worked all the time. (laughs) Meanwhile, you and I are sitting back going, I was there all the time for you. I was here every time. Um, So pretty, pretty wild. Um, Yeah, obviously being a mom to six kids and a CEO. um, I don't know a ton about your industry. I'm just curious and we can not pull on this thread if there's nothing there, but What's it like being a, a a female CEO in your space? Is it predominantly male oriented? Um, no, it's actually um, we work with a lot of biotech companies and pharma companies in mainly San Diego, San Francisco, Boston, New Jersey, uh, South Carolina, and in all of those companies, mm-hmm. I've worked with a, a lot of women. Um, in the leadership teams, as well as like the project management teams. So um, in Wisconsin, it's pretty like rare, but with the companies we're working with, I think it's appreciated and, um, and seen as a positive. It's, it's awesome. I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, I, I mean, the hope would be that that narrative is, is changing. That's why I'm asking the question, hoping that the answer is, yeah, no, actually it's not, I'm not getting, you know, because you listen, you read stories about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and it wasn't the answer you just gave. It was much, much, much harder. So obviously people paved the way and things seem to be changing uh, a little mm-hmm. bit there. So, um, okay. So like, let's, that's a good transition to shifting to Spalding Clinical. So for the benefit of our listeners who probably have zero idea what you guys do, can you give br- a brief understanding of what Spalding Clinical does? Yes. So um, we do contracted clinical research for pharmaceutical companies. Um, Every drug that is, that wants to go on the U.S. market has to go through three phases of testing before it's approved to market. And the first phase is what we do. And that's all for safety, looking for side effects. And then also like the, the drug profile, the pharmacokinetic profile. So how fast it's moving through your system. Does it interfa- interact with food? Basically everything you see on a package insert when you pick up your prescription from the pharmacy, um, we study and test. So it's all in um, human volunteers too. So we have a building with, that was a former hospital. We have 200 hospital beds. So we are typically, we typically have about a hundred people in house at once in various different trials. And, um, we basically, um, administer the product and then do a lot of blood draws to watch that rise and fall of the product in the blood and then collect all the data, safety data throughout the test. And it's usually anywhere from a two day stay that a volunteer is with us to, the average is about 10 days, but, and then we do studies as long as like 45 to 50 days are really long ones. That's wild. And they stay there at the facility. Yes. Yep. Overnight you check in wow. and wow. it's, it's basically, we're creating an extremely controlled environment 
So like, you know, scientific method, you're not introducing any outside interference with, you know, if you, if you woke up and drank five cups of coffee and that accelerated your heart rate, we're taking that variable out so that you can see it's not coming from the drug. And if you're having people there for, you know, 45 days at a time, I mean, it's like you're running a hospital or a, a hotel and, and yeah. you know, you kind of just all the things that go in with that, I would think. So you just talked about you, it's a former hospital. Is that, is that a common thing for in your space for a clinical trials company to find a hospital to buy? Like, how did that all come about? No, it, that's not very common. Um, a lot of units are kind of purpose built, but they may, they might be set more up like, um, like dormitories almost they'll have like central medical areas and then they'll have um more like sleeping rooms um there are a quite a few phase one units set up within hospitals throughout the country but that's more of like academic centers so an academic research area might have some hospital beds like six beds or 12 beds that they're using for studies so, but, so ours is pretty unique Okay, and it came about because, um, my dad who started the company, he was, um, he was driving by this hospital that had just been vacated and he was working in, he was going to phase one units like every day because his, his last position, he was a VP of sales and he was going around the world selling telemetry systems to phase one units like ours. So he was seeing these units all the time and he was like, <laughs> I can do this better. I can build this better. And then he was driving by this hospital every day and he was like, oh my gosh, I can, that's, that's the spot. I can do this. Wait, wait. Okay. Okay. So I, I don't think I knew this part. I, I knew you guys bought uh, a hospital. What I didn't understand was I thought the company was already oh, started no. before, before that. So you're telling me. You're telling me he was, he's selling these telemetry units, mm -hmm. seller phase ones, driving by. And that's the thing that, cause I was going to say what started Spalding, like, how did it get started? And so that is basically the story, right? Like he drives by this hospital and is like, oh, I should buy that. I think he had been thinking about it before he saw the hospital and there was another like yeah. major cardiologist in the industry he was talking to about like how they could do things better. And then he sees this hospital it was all like right at the same moment. So the the really? hospital had just happened to vacate to move, to build a completely new center. And it was just right at that perfect moment in time. And uh, were you involved at that point um, in the company? So this is like July. Well, let's say like May, he drives by, sees this, has this idea. July, he filed the paperwork for the LLC and I got involved in November. So it was all like a pretty quick, okay. short period of time. And then we moved into the building in May. So he ended up. He oh, ended wow. up so under a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, we moved in first, like kind of leasing some space and then they were leasing some space back from us, but it happened pretty quickly. And then you guys ended up buying the entire building. Yeah. I mean, that was, Within the year, we had bought the entire building. He, he bought it for a dollar. Wow. Did you know that? <laughs> Come on. No, I did not yeah. know that. Tell me how this went down. Well, What's the story behind it, that? It, it was, um, they were looking at 
did they just mow it and turn it into real estate development? And they couldn't yeah. find a buyer. Um, but if you kept it up, you basically took on like a million dollars a year in operating expenses. And it was right. a community built hospital. It had been um, built in 1929 with subsequent additions. So the community was really upset that it that they were moving out of it. And I think it just provided a win-win that they could pass it on. It would go into good use, but somebody would take on those operating expenses. And it allowed them to transition because they leased back. They had just built a beautiful new oncology center and they didn't have one yet at the new space. So they leased that back from us for a good two years. So it allowed them a good transition time. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just could only imagine like looking down at the purchase contract and seeing a dollar <laughs> as the, the purchase. I think it was, it was like at the time, funny. like a fun thing to say, but at the same time, I know my dad was just like, so like just freaking out. Cause you're taking on all of that overwhelmed expense yeah. and like, yeah. it's a big, like, Oh my God. <laughs> and the payroll. Yeah. Yeah. The true cost was not a million. The true cost was not a dollar. No. But to, to, to be able to go, look, I bought that thing. Yeah. That, it's a fun. You know, I, I paid two fifty for a cup of coffee today. <laughs> and that, that building technically only cost me a dollar yeah. at close. So. Yeah. I heard a guy with like a similar story with a historic property in Milwaukee, huge building, and he bought it for a dollar, but it needed like $16 million in renovations. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's always a good story. It's what it, it kind of happens with those old historic buildings. And we've had to put a lot into. Yeah. That you're trying to keep around. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that like not only just keeping it up, but developing the location. Cause I'm sure while a hospital is good for what you're looking for, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you want to do within there that are far better for a phase one trials company than a hospital, I would imagine. And built on 1929 infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. The spaces itself have actually been really easy to convert. It's like the mechanicals. You have to just keep up with the boiler and the chiller and the generator and all of those things that, you know, that's the biggest investment moving forward with it. I like to ask what the fork was in the road that led you to join Spalding, but it, you know, it sounded like it happened pretty quickly. How did, how did that happen? So your, your dad starts it, Randy starts it. Um, and within, I mean, by November, you're on board. I can't imagine there was a ton of revenue coming in <laughs> at that point, uh, unless maybe there were some contracts, but I don't know. No, no. I mean, he had an investment to start a founding team. And um, so we came on with small salaries, but my husband came on at the same time. So we had just gotten married in the oh, last year. We just had our first... Um, child. And I was working um, like second shift on poison control as a nurse, but I was also in getting my master's. Oh. And um, I had worked in hospital units and I, and I, it was actually like a really nice fork in the road for me because I always wanted to go in the sciences. Um, but I was always really interested in the why behind everything rather than like the direct patient care. I love, I always, I would be on the hospital floor and they'd say, okay, you need to give this vasopressin over IV. I'd be like, well, why? Like, tell me more about like how that uh, affects the heart rate. <laughs> it's like, you just need to learn the protocols. And I'm like, but I want to know. So it was like a 
it was a really great transition for me because I got to read all of these protocols on all these different studies. And I just, I loved it. So, um, mm-hmm. my husband was, um, a firefighter and like EMT, and he was just about to get hired on with like a major city contract as a firefighter. And he made the leap over too and, um, working in the telemetry system. So, um, he actually went, came, went on like a month before I did. And then we were just all in and we moved wow. out, um, from Milwaukee to West Bend, which is like 30 minutes away, but so that we could be right there. And we spent like all of our time mm-hmm. at the building, getting it ready, writing all the procedures, getting all the, um, units ready to be operational. And we ran our first study like a, about four months after we moved into the building. After you moved in. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, you guys were all in, I guess I don't, didn't know the story of you and your husband and the, I I think I knew you had had your first child right around that time, but I had no idea that he was on board as well. I mean, that's, that's some big life changes all at the same time. Yes. And really putting all of your chips in one basket. Wasn't stressful at all, right? Yes. I, I was I was just going to say that I was going to just note on that because the the usual thing to do is have one person take the risk. The other person has a nice steady income, you know, and you, you try to make it work as best you can. But, yeah, throw both uh, jump in with uh, four feet instead of both yeah. feet, I guess, at that point. Did your dad did Randy um, was this sort of as he was envisioning this? Was that always sort of the plan to have you guys come on board? Uh, what's the story behind that? Cause that, that can easily go the wrong way. I don't, I, I know that like his dream was to like work with his children. So I know that was like, okay. Uh, okay. That he wanted that, but I don't think he knew we would all be there right away, like ready to go. And, um, <laughs> but we were, and we were like, we were cheap labor at the time for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was, yeah, it was child labor, yeah. really, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> how many of the siblings, uh, how many of the siblings came on board at that same time? Um, three of us, my older sister, my younger sister, and my husband. So four total in the family. Okay. Wow. But again, that's, you know, I talked to a lot. I have some family in my business. Um you know, they, it all has its ups and downs and I'm sure we could talk about all the ups right now, but I'm sure if we wanted to do a, a, a B sides of this podcast, we could talk about all the, <laughs> the, the downs as well and the challenges. Um, so, but, but I also think there's just something about that trust, something about that trust there oh. that you don't get everywhere else. And I feel like it's, it's hard to put it into words, but you know, people are always like, Oh my gosh, you work with your family. And it's like, yeah, Definitely challenging, but I know I can, I know there's a level of trust that I just can't get with somebody else oh my gosh. outside of it. Yes. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. And I felt that really strongly just in the last couple of years, because um, I'll jump ahead, like past a little past pandemic, we were really struggling operationally okay. because we needed like strong, I had transitioned from COO to CEO. So I was, I had been Mm -hmm. really deep in the operation, really running it every day. And when I went into CEO, I was trying to find that operational head to help take that 
And the first year it did not go well. I had hired the wrong person and it just wasn't working. And I was talking to like my business mentor and he was like, is there anybody in your family that could do this? Cause like, just don't underestimate like the trust that you have in, in family. And I'm like, well, I've been working with family mm-hmm. forever, but I'm like, I guess. So my husband had just <laughs> exited. He left the business like six years ago and he went to a different company. He had an exit mm-hmm. from there just at this moment. So I turned to him like, Hey, would you come into the business for a little bit and like run the operation? Oh my and gosh. he did. And he's been in like seven months now. And oh my gosh, like the difference in having someone you can trust and you can definitely find that um, hiring externally, finding the right mm-hmm. person, but we needed a fast solution. And there was like an automatic someone I could trust a hundred percent. So it, it, it's, it makes me feel Yeah. Trust and, know, yeah. and knows the business. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Knows the bit. You don't have to, you don't have to teach it from a cultural perspective. Is that, was that, is that difficult having a husband and wife team? And by the way, we should start another podcast about like how the hell you guys make <laughs> that work. But, uh, how is, is there from a cultural perspective for the rest of the team? You know, I, I, there is other family in the team, but you know, I'm sure there's plenty of non-family employees. Like, is that an awkward thing? Does it not come up? Does it, or do you address it? Anything like that? Well, at, at this point in time, um, there's none, none of my other family is involved with me in this business, except my dad as like a, a chairman. Oh, interesting. So in the leadership team, okay, there's no it. family, which I think would make it more awkward. So when you remove that, yeah. um, culturally, it's it's been fine. If he came in and there were issues and it wasn't working well, that would have been really difficult. Yeah. But he came in and... Right. relieved so much stress from so many people so fast that everybody was just so grateful and, yeah. and welcoming of it. So it, it works fine. And then between me and yeah, him, it's interesting. They talk between me and him, like I love it. Um, and he says like, I'll, I will not leave until you're in a place that you have someone, but I do need to leave because I need to go do my own thing. Oh, okay. So we've, we've told everybody, right. along the way like this is temporary but yeah you could do a whole nother podcast on that one (laughs) yeah i mean sounds like clear expectations which i've found with family and i think people are afraid to have those conversations unfortunately about clear expectations because they feel because you have to talk about things like hierarchy hierarchy or who is the final say on this thing versus that thing. And I just think that, you know, those things have to be talked about. Once you talk about them, then they're on the table and you, you say, well, we talked about that before. This is, this, this was the decision we came to. I think what most family businesses tend to do is just brush that stuff under Mm -hmm. the rug and don't ever talk about it because it feels uncomfortable. And, and, uh, and unfortunately blows up in the end, you know, it doesn't, whereas you just talk about these tough things early and it makes it easier. Also sounds like your husband did a really good job of, um, there's this, uh, guy I listen to on some podcasts. He talks about the trust battery, about trust being like a battery, like on our cell phone, right? It gets sent to you with, you know, 30% charged 
And then over time you, you build that up and, and it sounds like he came in and just charged those trust batteries with all those employees really quickly so that they were like, Oh, this is a good thing to have this person here. Plus they also had the nuance of it's always been a family business. So this is not anything new. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so just transitioning a little bit, we just talked about culture a little bit, but I'm, I'm, because again, this podcast is called the Happily Different Podcast. It's uh, you know one of our core values at twelve five. It's about how people took different approaches towards things, and you know talking about your family and and what the things we just talked about. I mean, you guys epitomize that 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 idea that no, most people would maybe not make these decisions um, if, if they had another option necessarily. But you guys are actively saying yes, we want our family involved. Uh, we want the culture to be like this. We want to stay in Milwaukee. And we could probably go to one of the coasts and make, you know, do things there. You know, you're, you're actively choosing these things. Um, I'm just curious, and this will be probably a theme for the next little while for most of my interviews, because it's just really interesting to hear what people did, you know, during this pandemic. And so you're in the healthcare field, you're doing uh, pharmaceutical testing. Um, I don't know if you guys were killing it you know, before, just slightly before 19 and 20 or whatever, but, you know, sort of setting the scene, you know, I've talked about with other, with other companies uh, that I've interviewed here, but, you know, March hits and March of 2020 hits and basically the world stops. What did that look like for you guys? And were you CEO yet? You know, how are you feeling? I became CEO in February of 2020. So It was like a month later. Um, Oh my God. 18, 19, I was kind of acting as CEO. My dad was just there in the background and I was telling him like, hey, like, let's do this for two years. We'll transition it. So I was already kind of in it, but um, we were ramping up our sales and I was super focused on sales in 2018 and 19. And our sales had taken a nosedive like in 17. I was just building it back up as fast as I could, getting our name out there, doing new marketing. And so when 2020 hit, we were still like, we were in like a good upward um, trajectory, like doing pretty well. And then um, when in March, when there was the shutdown, we did have to shut down the operation for about a month. And, um, but the, the majority of our clients needed to keep going whenever it was safely possible to do so. So it wasn't like there was, so we were just, the hardest part was operationally redoing everything. I mean, we just spent that entire month putting in like all of the lines on the floor for distancing and changing the beds, bed space Mm -hmm. to distance those and, putting all of our procedures together for PPE and mask wearing and gowns and gloves, um, set up like COVID testing and a drive-through so that like our participants coming in could do that first. So there was a lot to do operationally and that was the most difficult part. But one of the major fortunate things for us was we have 200 beds in 200,000 square feet most of our competitors have 200 beds in a hundred thousand square feet. So we're right. Tons of space. space. So we were able to say to our customers, like most 
of our competitors were reducing their capacities by 50% because they would have like a, oh. a ward with, you know, 12 beds in a row and they would have to now remove a bed in between. We always had two beds per room, like in a hospital room. So we we're super spread out. Mm-hmm. So we were able to say like, we, we don't have to reduce our capacities. So the uh, supply and demand quickly changed in our favor. And um, so from a sales perspective, it was a huge booster for us. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by the accidental, like, how do I say this? Cause I don't want, I don't want it to sound like you didn't work hard to obviously get this, but I've talked to a lot of bi- businesses of this accidental success. Like it's not like you're, it's not like Randy knew when he was buying that hospital, there's going to be a pandemic someday. Let's have 200,000 right. square feet so we can have space. I just, it, it's just funny how the universe brings you what it brings you and whether you act on it or not is obviously key. But I mean, that month you're talking about, I think what people uh, very quickly forget is uh, you talked about masking and uh, gowns and um, gloves. Those things weren't easy to get. Right. Then you talked about testing. You couldn't find testing anywhere. How did you guys handle the testing? Did you guys do that in-house or contract with somebody in in the for the drive-through? We contracted out. So we would collect on site, but then we were um, cor- using a courier for the samples every day um, for a, a lab in Milwaukee. So we contracted out the analysis of the samples and yeah, had to put that in place really quickly. And how did all that, how did the sort of, how did that transition go in terms of you, uh, you know, in terms of like the success of those protocols? It all went, um, just fine. It went, it went really well. I mean, of course there's awesome. like, you know, disagreements along the way you have your chief medical or your medical director and your doctors wanting to go one way and staff and operational staff, like, Hey, we got it. So there's tons of discussions on how do you make this work? And all so many details to iron out that it, it's just exhausting mentally for everybody. Everybody was tired, but they did it really well. Yeah, that's 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 what I get from everybody, uh, inc- ourselves included. It's just everyone was tired, yeah. tired then. So, um, okay, so uh, just quickly because I'm I'm taking most of your time now, and I want to I want to get to the last few things here. Uh, historically, you guys have been uh, clinical trials for pharmaceutical companies. Um, have you pivoted to anything else or where, what else would the Spalding model do well for? Well, um, we opened as like the first paperless site in phase one. So you had in, in 2008, when we oh, opened all hospitals were on EMR systems, but the phase one industry was still on paper. And so that was <laughs> my dad's vision was to make it electronic. And we did that. And we did it alone for 10 years. I mean, all of our competitors didn't come onto that until about five years ago. So um, Mm -hmm. in the same vein, we're going to continue to innovate in our space. And we already, I mean, we already have, we've used our knowledge of that to produce data results faster than anybody else. But I think the way that goes in the future and, and even before the pandemic, we're, it was looking at how do you, take away all of the cost and time of phase one and all, all drug testing 
how do you take away the brick and mortar from it and bring it into the participant's home? And then the pandemic just accelerated mm -hmm. that question so much. And our, right. um, our goal or pivot in the future will be to continue to utilize our systems to bring it to the home. And for phase one, that will happen more quickly for late stage testing where they're already doing a lot of at-home components. But for phase one, I think like five to seven years, we'll need to be able to really, really convert to that. But for now, even just being able to do electronic diaries at home and things like that, data collection points at home, we're starting to introduce those things. That's cool. So moving, moving more, just like everybody else, moving everything into the home or more remote, which in your business, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, has a has real challenges with data integrity. With <laughs> did they have five cups of coffee, two whiskeys, and a right, you know, whatever right. you know <laughs> to 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 mess with the the bloodstream? So I'm, I'll be interested to see how you guys how you guys transition to that uh, here in the future. I'm excited to see what that looks like. Um, okay, so last last few questions. Fast four here. These are not serious questions. Um, they're one, you know, just one sentence questions. So don't feel like you have to take too much time thinking about them. Uh, just fun ones to to uh, finish with. Um, other than what you're doing right now, what other profession or business would you like to take a stab at? Well, uh, that's that's hard. I would <laughs> say um, my my immediate response. I thought you were going to say, "Would you have wanted to go into?" I don't know if I could pivot it to this at this sure. point in my career, yeah. but it was. Um, like movie directing oh, and cool. producing. Yeah. So it's a creative, it's a creative component. So um, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's like creative um, involvement on TikTok at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I kind of get my full from that. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Um, yeah. I need to reword that question. Cause I do mean that like most of us aren't going to pivot into this new, new phase, but like, what would be the thing that you would love? Like, I would love to start, I would like to have start a business naming other companies. I like, I love funny, oh, gimmicky. Fun. I would love to just name people's companies or products. I think it would be a lot of fun. Next one is, is what is something you're terrible at? I'm terrible at doing one thing at a time. At a time. Yes. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I feel... I feel similar. I'm trying to get better at that because I do know the science behind it. That multitasking is a joke, but it my brain just wants to do that all the time. All right. What book are you reading right now? Or what was the last book if you're not reading one right now? Um, I just finished Sacred Knowledge. Sacred Knowledge. What is that about? It's a guy who went to a Jesuit high school and he's like one of the last Greek classes, class, like a PhD in mm -hmm. the classics. And he's like my age, he's our age now. And he did like this eat, pray, love kind of thing where he went to, or even Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. He went to Greece, um, it, uh, Jerusalem and Rome to see if he could debunk the, this, there was this theory out there in the seventies that there was, um, psilocybin in the original Eucharist in the Catholic okay. church. Okay. So he went and studied all of that. And it was really interesting. Very good. I don't think he ever made a case definitively in the end, but the other. it's super yeah. interesting. Read. So uh, that is such a selfish question. So add it to my list. Yeah, okay, for sure. Good. 
on my list. All right. Lastly, what's the last thing you listened to on Spotify or Apple Music? Mine today was the Smartless podcast with they interviewed Ben Stiller. I listened to Despacito with my kids on the way to school this morning. There you go. (laughs) That's a good way to start. Hey, that's a way to start a Monday. If you ask me. Oh, yeah. That's the way to go. My eight-year-old was like whining about something in the back. And I was like, I need to turn on some music right now. And it worked. She was like in a good mood by the time she got to school. There's a genius mom right there. Well, uh, Cassie, thanks you for spending some time with us today. This has been super fun and educational. Uh, where can people find you or, um, you know, whether it's on your TikTok or, uh, or, or find Spalding Clinical, where can they find you online and get in touch if anywhere? Uh, SpaldingClinical.com and I'm on LinkedIn under Cassandra Irado. Awesome. We'll put that all in the show notes. Thanks for, thanks for spending some time with us today. All right. Thank you. Take care.